0: So this is an exciting way to kick off the seminar for today, the conference, to go through and do kind regulatory updates. Exciting, I think right? So. I so, think so. there's two ways to think about it. It's one that we can get out of the way and it'll be over with and you can enjoy the rest of the day. Or as Amanda and I think about it, it's the ex- most exciting part of the day. I know there's that some of you out there like that, but Amanda in particular. Yep. Right?
1: Yep. Agreed. Agreed.
0: So thank you all for coming this, this, this morning those and as as john had alluded to there's a lot going on from uh, an accounting standard standpoint a lot of changes these have been going kind of coming into fruition for a while but we're here now it's kind of it's amazing how quickly these came up they seem so far away but here we are so there's you know what we kind of see as three core topics Um, before i start i guess we want to say questions you can save them for the end we'll save time at the end for questions um, but today, this session will be a very high level overview, um, not a lot more of the high level things to think think about, particularly on a nonprofit financial statement framework. Uh, we covered this at, in detail at the conference last year, but that was kind of the standard. Now we're really getting in towards time to really implement. So we're gonna get more into implementation surrounding that. So Amanda's gonna be focusing on that when she walks us through that in a few minutes. Um, and then the revenue recognition standards, um, as we know, are a big change. And those are coming up very quickly down the road right after you address the number of re- reporting. It's going to be right into REVREC with that. Um, again, it's going to be a very high-level overview, but we do have a webinar and our webinar on May 20, 23rd, um, which I know we sent invites out for that. Um, so that will be a much more in-depth overview for that. So stay tuned for that. If you haven't registered, uh, please go ahead and do, do that. And lease accounting. That's kind of the thing that's coming up after the REVREC come, comes up. Those are kind of the what we consider the big three we'll be covering today, um, and then we have some other updates which we'll cover if there's time available. But we just want to make sure you're aware of that. Um, so to kind of kick us off, Amanda's going to jump in on financial reporting standards. Yep.
1: Thanks, Matt. So like Matt said, um, what you know the way that these uh, the documents your slides that you have access to are uh, structured is that the detail of the standard is in the back of these documents, and you know like Matt said, we're going to not touch upon those but we would certainly encourage you to read them say have any you know uh, communicate any questions at the, at the Q&A section of um, our session and you have access to an on-demand webinar on our website that goes into the intricacies of the standard I'm going to more focus today high level what does the standard cover and what should you all consider when when implementing the necessary changes within your organization to be compliant with the standard so uh, FASB hadn't looked at uh, nonprofit financial statements in a period of 20 years or so. So when they did, you know, they, they originally did this in a, in a two-phase process. And this is phase one. And phase two, you know, is kind of dormant at the, at the moment. We don't really know much. There's not, there's really nothing has been issued. Uh, thus far but this phase one covers this series of uh, provisions here so it covers liquidity and uh, liquidity management and what does that mean Um, that means that you know what's going to be required in your financial statements is a disclosure surrounding what resources does your organization have available to you in the next 12 months to meet working capital needs but also how does the organization assess liquidity that may result in some internal changes that need to be made and how you look at liquidity not just from how do I pay the bills but programmatically the, the need for liquidity may be different and what do I mean by that if you're a lending organization the availability of capital to you to to lend is also going to be in that footnote and you're going to want to touch upon that as an example net asset classification so what used to be um, unrestricted net assets temporarily restricted net assets and permanently restricted net assets is now going to be without donor restriction and with donor restriction. So effectively what's happening is we're co- uh, the FASB is requiring that we collapse the permanently restricted and temporarily restricted into one net, one net asset classification. Reporting of expenses, so there's some organizations um, in this audience that, that may not be required to report your expenses in a, in a bit in a, of a robust detail. So what that means is you're gonna need to report your expenses by natural classification and function. To some degree, you might do that for the 990, but it's just, it may need to be a bit more robust or it may not be, but we'll talk about that when we get to the implementation. The placed in service approach. Under current guidance, you are able, if you receive cash or uh, a gift of property, plant, and equipment, you are you have the option to release that temporarily restricted gift into unrestricted at the time the asset is placed into service, or you have the, the option to release that from temporarily restricted into unrestricted uh, operations over time in line with depreciation. You are no longer going to be required to do that latter option and you are going to be required to play, to move the monies from that temporary, well, I guess with donor restriction bucket into the, un- the without donor restriction bucket at the time the asset is placed into service. Underwater endowments. So the reason the FASB collapsed the two uh, restricted net asset categories is really to help with this. They found that some users of the financial statements um, aren't quite uh, they, they run into complexities when reading nonprofit financial statements. So what this is going to do is, if you have an endowment that, that may, unfortunately, be what's commonly referred to as underwater, so the fair value is it's fell below the original corpus, there it was common to show a negative in your permanently restricted. That will no longer happen because it it will be shown combined with what's in your temporarily restricted. So your appreciation on that corpus, and then in the footnotes we're going to need to uh, speak to um, if. if the fair value has fell below the corpus. And statement of cash flows and investment return. Um, So there's two uh, different ways you can report your statement of cash flows, direct and indirect method. And all the FASB is uh, now saying is that if you choose the direct method, that you no longer need to do an indirect method reconciliation. It's a cosmetic change. An investment return. If you're an organization who has a, a, a very large, robust endowment and you have someone designated to manage that endowment, and when I say manage the endowment, I mean manage the investments uh, that, you're, you know, that you're choosing, you may be, you, depending on if you meet the criteria, you may be able to um, net some of those costs against the investment earnings rather than showing them on your functionals or grossed up in your expenses. So the effective date for, for calendar year filers, it's the year we're in right now, 2018. Um, if you're a fiscal year filer, it's 2019. When you apply this standard, it does need to be retrospectively applied. What do I mean by that? It means that if in the year that this uh, standard is adopted, if you are showing two years worth of financial information in your financial statements, you need to move the changes back for almost all, I'll talk about a few provisions that you don't need to do that with, but almost all of the provisions need to be kind of moved back into the previous year. So what does that mean? Your beginning equity number may change by bucket. And you need to disclose that in your financial statements, what changed by with or without donor restriction, okay? If you are, so I talked about a couple of provisions that you don't need to move back into the previous year. So if in year, when you you adopt this standard, if you show two years, you don't need to go back to the previous year and report your expenses by natural classification and function if you are not currently required to do so. You can make that change effective in the year of adoption and disclosure about liquidity. Um, you know, that, and, and I think why FASB did that is because, depending on the, uh, the operations of your organization, that may be a, a quite difficult assessment. It's not always very clear, looking at your balance sheet, what is and is not liquid. And we'll talk about you know, other things to consider when you go through this process at your own organization.
0: So I guess, Amanda, when they yeah. think about whether they're gonna do single or compare financial statements, one consideration could be whether they have to restate equity. Certainly. Right. Yes. Because that would mean you have to go back two years and do it. So it's not just a year of adoption. If you compare the statements, you're going to change both years. So you may want to decide is it really worth the work going through that that restatement for two years or maybe this year of adoption, just a single year and then going forward do comparative statements again. So it's something to think about as a consideration. Certainly. Um, but we've had some clients that have done, they have adopted early, they have done both ways. Yeah. And the facts and circumstances why you wanted to, to do that, but that is a factor. You don't have to do comparative statements if you think it's going to be a lot more work to adopt some of these standards. Right.
1: You know, and that all depends how many of these provisions and, and how much of how much it's going to impact your organization. If, if you currently have, you know, a large number of temporarily restricted gifts of cash or property, plant, and equipment that you are releasing over time, this may have a very significant impact because you know when Matt says you have to go back two years, if we're showing 2018 compared to 2017, you need to know what it was at, 2000, at the end of 2016 because both of those equity numbers need to be restated for lack of a better term. So there's certain provisions of this accounting standard that can be early adopted without adopting the whole standard. Um, so what you can't, the, the provisions that you can do are what I just said, place and service approach. And that may be something that you all out, you know, out in the audience may wanna think about doing because that'll lighten the impact in the year of adoption. If you choose to, if you do have money in those temporarily restricted buckets that relate to property, plant, and equipment, you have the option of releasing those now into operations unrestricted and not wait until the year you're required to adopt the standard. Another is uh, the qualitative and quantitative information. That surrounds liquidity. And again, the, the, you may, the reason why you can adopt this now is because they're your footnotes. Within, within a, you know, a scope, you can put whatever you want in your footnote. So if you'd like to currently speak to how liquid your organization is and how you all think about liquidity, you certainly are able to do so uh, currently. And reporting um, expenses by function and uh, classification. So you certainly can, if you're not required to do so, can choose now to implement this change. That might be, you know, I I see this, this could, it has potential of being a a heavy lifting exercise. So it may be something that your organization does want to wait and do, because again, in the year of uh, of adoption, you can opt to not retrospectively apply this to the previous year. And I think the FASB knows that this could be heavy lifting and that's why. Now, the the changes that can't be um, early adopted are um, collapsing the two restricted net asset classes. Eliminating the requirement of the reconciliation on that cash flow, again, a presentation, a presentation change. Under, underwater endowment reporting, the reason that you can't adopt that early without adopting the whole standards because that and the net asset classification kind of go hand in hand because we're, we're getting rid of the permanently restricted on the face of your financial statements, but we're gonna have to add a disclosure. So you can't do the disclosure without making the change on the face, if that makes sense. And then uh, being able to inve- uh, net your in- investment expenses if you have those, with uh, meaning internal, uh, with the investment earnings, you need to adopt the whole standard to do that. So we've had, you know, we've had some experience with um, some, you know, clients and, and non-clients implementing this this change early, and uh, we we thought it would, you know, help you all to talk through some of the hurdles that that they came across to try to avoid them. So uh, some of the hurdles, I, I think the, the biggest hurdle or the or the biggest understatement was the time that it took, and the resources necessary. Um, you know, when I, think about the, when I think about implementing this standard, I think about it in no matter how much or how little is impactful to your organization, I think about it in four steps. Step number one is reading and understanding the standard, time consuming, and intimately understanding the standard. Two, assessment, assessing what, how much is this going to impact my organization. And I don't mean just how many of those bullet points of the provisions affect. I mean how much time, how many resources do I need? Do I have those resources? Is that gonna take away from another function if I use those resources? When I say resources, I mean people. You know, So if, if taking away people from their current responsibilities, is that gonna hinder the operations of my organization? It may or may not, but it's an assessment that needs to be had. Three, design and implementation of the necessary changes. Um, that one, of course, directly correlates to how much Affects your organization that might that may be quite time consuming, and fourth, testing and education. So, if and what do I mean by that? You know, if if you're currently someone who is not required to report uh, expenses by uh, classification by uh, function and classification, then you need when you build an infrastructure to be able to do that. Meaning, your reporting function, you want to test it. <clears throat> that's going to take time. But even if that's not something that's applicable to your organization whatever changes are necessary and they're going to be unique to everyone sitting in this room you're going to want to train the people that are going to be responsible for each function and that takes time so it's just having a realistic sense on how much time and people are needed to be compliant with this standard so that was a hurdle so i think i spoke to this the you know the the effects of implementing this the into the standard uh internally and again what i mean by that is you know, within a nonprofit, do you have the resources necessary, or is that going to hinder another part of your business? Are you going to take your resources away from their daily billing? Is that going to affect cash flow? Are you going to take program infrastructure away? Is that going to affect your programmatic operations?
0: Right. And I think, you know, with that, with the the early adoption is also a way to spread it out. Certainly. Right. So if you did some provisions early, get those out of the way and split over two, two years, that could be an option as well. So think about that. And I think, you know, we've been, we've been suggesting these changes, you're probably sick of hearing us talking about these last several years as the changes came out. Um, but you know, we're here as a resource to work with us to talk about the changes, how we can help you with them. A lot of this stuff is really the consultation we can do with you to kind of guide you in the right direction and we can help you with part of it as well. So again, when you're meeting with your team and during the conversation during the course of the year, this should be on the agenda. To discuss because as Amanda is going through, now's the time because for county kind of the year ends, you're in the new standard, June 30th will be next next year. Um, so it's really the time really to make this more of, of a priority. On top of everything else you have to do. Right. We right, understand right. Time, is, the- time is time li- is limited, so you've got to kind of schedule this out.
1: Absolutely. So how does each uh, you know, what are some you know, suggestions in terms of implementing each uh, you know provision of this accounting standard? So it's really looking at, you know, and, I, and I'm going to go, if we look at the slides, it goes by each provision. But, you know, really just un, one, identifying which one, which provisions are really impactful to your organization. And we're going to talk about, you know, when we get to some, you might wanna, it's going to take your analysis a step further. And, you know, what I mean by that <sighs> is, and we're, we'll get to this, but I think about what is going to take the most time. Things like the liquidity assessment. Things like implementing an infrastructure to report your expenses by class and function, if you don't currently do so, those are going to take time, and uh, you know. So you want to start with the expenses. You want to start with, do I have the infrastructure currently in place to do this? And in the year of implementation, if you're currently not required to do this, you know, you you may. Um, choose one of two options that the FASB gives you so well three I I suppose you have an option to you know report a separate statement of functional expenses and that is the most in-depth level of detail of reporting okay so that's going to take more heavy lifting on your end you can uh, report the expenses in a more summarized fashion within your footnotes or uh, if you provide the appropriate level of detail on your profit and loss statement or your statement of activities you have those three options. So that's something when, when you're going through this assessment of how does this impact my organization, you may want to know what, the, what your three options are because it might determine which one you choose, you know, how right. much time you have. So
0: this is the one that I means that they really can't wait to the end of the year to do this.
1: No. That, right. I, yeah, yeah. We, we wouldn't advise that yeah. because then you'd be, you know, looking back, you know, would be, you're not really, you, uh, I said testing, right? I mentioned that. You want to be able, that was, uh, you know, my uh, fourth step. You want to be able to know your system's working that you're implementing. So in order to do that, you want to you know yeah. do it now. Right. So
0: they yeah. their county or end, they really should be. Right. They don't do it already. They really need to prioritize this.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And um, also, you know, I don't think I spoke about it, but it's in later in the slides. Is you wanted to you need to develop if you don't already have one um, a, a policy of allocating expenses because that's going to need to be disclosed in your financial statements and now we're going to have to provide some insight as to how you allocate costs and and what do I you know direct costs are a little bit easier but there's certainly some costs that are shared so we're going to need to speak to how that's done and you know that that might take time to develop think think about develop and implement a policy doing that so we should start thinking about that now liquidity so you know, I, I know I, I keep saying liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. Again, sometimes looking at your balance sheet, it's not, always, it's not very easy to the reader to identify what on your balance sheet is um, available for working capital needs or, or programmatic needs in the next 12 months. Um, but, I, but I think what we want to talk about is even a step further, what isn't on your balance sheet that affects your liquidity? And you might be thinking, what does she mean by that? What external factors might limit your, uh, your availability or your ability to use, your resources. So, are there the most obvious that comes to mind is your uh, donor, uh, the do outside donor restrictions. That's an easy one, but there could be others. There could be uh, the the financial climate could be limiting your availability to attain resources. It could be a political climate. It could be that there's you know activity not on your balance sheet that you do have access to. Maybe there is a related a related entity that you don't quite console, you don't control, you don't consolidate but you have a share in and you obtain distributions from that entity pretty annually. That's an example, but that's something we'd want to talk about because we want to tell the reader that it's not only what we don't have access to, but what do we have access to that isn't on our balance sheet.
0: So that takes a lot of thought in thinking about, it's not like one size fits all. It's gonna really depend upon the organization and the lines of business that they have and the restrictions that they have, because it could vary.
1: Certainly, and that's why I keep saying liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. It's not just putting, you know yes, we're required to put numbers in a footnote disclosure, and, you know, that might be the easy part compared to the qualitative uh, requirements because the qualitative is what's going to take the assessment and the time.
0: And like you said, that's, so you do that for one the first year, right? You don't have to go back. You do it for the year of adoption That's right, Only. that's right, that's right.
1: So net assets, this is just, you know, d- just understand how your financial statements are going to look and, and why does that matter? Because users of your financial statements, there's going to be a learning curve with the users as well. So you're going to want to educate those people now Okay, that could be lenders, that could be grantors, that could be, could be anybody. But just start having that conversation now, and, and depending on how impactful this is to your organization, you might wanna to put together a pro forma as to what is my balance sheet gonna look like? Um, underwater endowments, again, we're gonna be required to uh, uh, put a dis- footnote disclosure um, regarding underwater if you do have an underwater endowment. And again, that's when the fair value of a permanently restricted gifts fall below the corpus because it's not gonna be shown on the face of the statements as I alluded to earlier. But in the footnotes, we're gonna to have to, number one, state that that the fair value is below your corpus, but we're also gonna have to talk about what is your organization's policy about appropriating, so taking money out of an endowment that is underwater. Under MIFA you're currently allowed to do so if it's deemed prudent by the board of directors, but is that your organization's policy? It might be something you need to think about. You might not have a policy right now, and it might be a conversation that needs to be had. The place and service approach, I won't repeat myself, I think we talked about that, just assessing if we wanna release that now, do it beforehand, what is that gonna to do to my net assets? And that might be something you wanna do a pro forma on too, as well. And that last bullet, I, I can't stress that enough, genuinely just really understand what, what impact this is gonna to have to your organization. Um, and like Matt said, if, it, it, needs, it should be done now, um, not looking back, You know, right, when, right about when this standard is required to be implemented, we recommend that now. Talked about liquidity liquidity management i encourage you to look over again save have any questions for q a but in lieu of time i don't want to repeat myself um and and you know this is where we're going to get to you know the, the portion that i mentioned that it we we included these materials in in here but we're not going to speak to them because we went through that level of detail last year and we, you have an on-demand webinar but certainly if, if you do have if you have the uh, slides up on on your computer or phone and you do want to look through them we encourage questions um, during the Q&A session.
0: So last, last year at this conference, we kind of covered um, revenue recognition, very high level, very brief coming up. Now we're gonna go, dig a little bit more deeper in, into it. Again, high level standard. So some background, what, what, was, what was the norm in the industry, all across all industries, um, the accounting standards were different, revenue recognition, every industry kind of had a different standard. So the the focus was really to have one comprehensive standard that covered all industries all together to make it more of a uniform process. However, um, just to kind of make the point, what the standard really involves, this is the RevRec standard. (laughs) 700 pages, double-sided, yeah. And it came out, this is the initial one, it came out. It came out in three parts, A, B, and C. Usually a standard comes in one part. Mm. This was just the initial that came out a couple of years ago. After that, as the standard came out, oh, what about this, and what about that, and what about this, and what about the transition? What about principal versus Asian transactions? They've come up with other interpretations since then. This is still just a small piece of it. Um, and the key thing they never addressed in that standard for not-for-profits for was government grants and contributions. The standards have always been lacking. So those who have been, you know, in this industry as long as I have will remember when Fazer 116, 117 came out, which really was the first revision to the not-for-profit standards as Amanda went went through. They never really addressed contr- grants and government grants and contributions in that. Mm. So everybody kind of decided where, where it fell. It never really was clear guidance with that with RevRec coming out that really need to be, really to be clear, clear guidance. So they came out with this exposure draft to address it where things that should be carved out of the 606, which is REVREC, rev and into 605, which is grants and contributions. Mm-hmm. So this, this standard came out to kind of look at that, to clarify what a contribution is and to kind of say, okay, sh- will this fall under, is this a grant and contribution or is this a contract with a customer? So first thing we're, we're gonna talk about is granted contributions, what falls under this standard. So basically the, the definition of a contribution is you know, non-reciprocal, right? I'm not, I'm giving you money, I'm not expecting anything in return, I'm not providing service to, to you, versus a reciprocal, which is an exchange transaction, I'm giving you compensation, something in, in return. So I think, you know, the, the thing about it, one of the things that's common in nonprofits could be third-party reimbursement. I'm providing a service, I'm paying you for that service. That's back and forth. Government grant, not so much. Government grant is giving a a grant to you to serve your community, to serve your your mission and your purpose. The government doesn't really get a benefit from that. There's no direct benefit for it. It's more public benefit, but not direct benefit back. So in those cases, and the government's not required to provide these services, not required to do this, they do it, but you go back to the Constitution, which is really when you go back what's required, a lot of services aren't in there, which means it's really a contribution or a grant. Um, so this came out to kind of simplify that or decide what goes, what's a grant and contribution versus what's a contract. So if there is, if there is no commensurate value, was not an exchange, it's not an exchange transaction, it falls under a conditional contribution. So a government grant would be a conditional contribution. As an example, you have a grant with a with the federal government. It, it's a 12-month period, say, and it crosses your fiscal year. Under the you know the accounting rules for for an unconditional promise to give, you re, you record the whole commitment when it's committed, right? You record a receivable as a pledge. From a government, you wouldn't do that because there's conditions on it's conditional. So that basically means it falls under the conditional grants provision. Revenues recognized as conditions are met. So it's really clarifying foundation grants and government grants in particular as a contribution which will follow under this standard, and everything else will fall under the other standard. So what does this really mean? What it means is you've got to start here first. So we're suggesting going through your revenue stream, going through your streams of revenue and determining is this a contribution or is this a contract. That's really the starting point. We'll we'll get to that a bit further, but this is something that came up since we met last year. This wasn't the the case last year, which kind of clarified, a lot of the of the issues so this is it's a good thing because i think it's going to take a lot of things out of the revenue recognition standard but you still have to do this assessment so then looking at the the contracts with customers this is going to be effective for fiscal calendar year 2019 fiscal year 2020. so the grants and contract grants and standard i just mentioned has the same has the same effective date i should say that has not um it was it was it, it was exposed, it was submitted in exposure draft, it was commented on the final version issue, the final standard has not been issued yet. It's expected to be issued later this year. However, it's not expected to change. Um, the one thing they're, they're dealing with in the standard, if you have a, a, a contract or a grant that's already in place, do we follow the old standards or the new standards? There'll be some changes surrounding that. That's what they're clarifying. Other than that, we can assume this standard will be pretty close to the exposed form.
1: Matt, uh, you know, while we're yeah. on this implementation, if, if they do fall under the revenue recognition standards, you know, we have an, a, an effective date or, or when they're required to implement. But what about their? You spoke to contracts that they're in the middle of. What what about contracts that do fall under revenue recognition? Should they start thinking about that now? They do. Yeah, yeah. because it's going to be on yeah. day one. Okay. Right. Yeah. So right. the
0: problem with revenue recognition standard is whenever that standard was entered, was contracts were entered into, is the effective date. Hmm. You can't defer those. You can't say. Oh, I entered into this, this contract before the standards change. I'll be grandfathered in. There's no grandfathering in for RevRec. Rev, you have to do it retroactively, mm-hmm. which is a big factor yeah. from up. So, as, as, we kind of, as Amanda kind of went through, saying, well, probably you, know, you may have a restatement of net assets. It's probably not going to happen in most cases. Mm-hmm. In this standard, you could have a lot more restatement of revenue, probably your financial statements mm-hmm. from the adoption. So I think I covered the, the objective. They wanted to really have less industry, um, highly segmented standards, and one kind of, one kind of uniform standard for all industries. And so what do they want the standard to be? They want the revenue to be recognized, the transfer of services to a customer. It's the, you know, the customer transaction. Um, and you want to recognize revenue as the value is transferred to, that, to the customer. And there's a five-step process. I'll walk through in a few minutes for it. Um, so, again, as a not-for-profit, you know, it's really exchange transactions. You really have to go through your revenue stream and determine this is an exchange transaction or is this a grant or a contrib- contribution. And some organizations are going to have several. I mean, you think all the revenue streams not-for-profit has, particularly a multi-service agency that does a lot of different things, you could have a lot of grants you could have a lot of different types of contracts that need to be deal- dealt with differently because the arrangements are, are, are different with it. So, and there could be some that's both, like think of a special event, special event could have an exchange component and it could be a contribution component. Mm -hmm. Membership dues is another example that could be both. Membership dues could be structured, there's a service the member is getting um, and there's also we're adding contribution on top of that to support you know the over the budget or the contributions of the membership organization that could have both as well. So as I mentioned, there's a five-step process on Rev, RevRec. One is to identify the contract with the customer. So as I said, the first step's gonna go through all the revenue, then you're gonna identify what the contract is, and then, what are the performance obligations in the contract? So you have to read the contract through, and what is a performance obligation you're supposed to do in this in this contract? It could be one obligation, it could be several steps with it. And then you wanna determine the transaction price. What's the, what's the price for the transaction? and then you have to allocate the transaction price to the performance obligation. So that's allocation piece. And then you recognize revenue when each separate performance obligation is satisfied. So this is this is really the, the critical piece because you could have one performance obligation, which means revenue won't get recognized until the obligation is satisfied, is, is done. So, I think you know most people would like to keep the revenue recognition where they have it now, not change it. I mean, because I think you're kind of budging that way, or thinking that that way, your contracts may not be consistent with that. So, what we're advising our clients and nonprofits in general is really to look at your contracts, and can you break out can you break out the um, performance obligations within the in the contract so it's clear and distinct, and there's pieces to it. So. An example, one of the things I think about is a housing developer, because they have a housing development contracts and arrangements, and what does that contract cover? It covers developing a project, developing a, say it's a a affordable housing project, developing that that project, and for doing that, we're gonna get a fee for associated with doing that. So one way to think about it is, if the the contract really wasn't specific from a performance obligation standpoint, there could be one deliverable. Deliverable would be the project is complete, then that's really what I'm doing. And that's really what the revenue recognition will be for it. Or, you know, is there a really a way I can break it out? Maybe a piece of that obligation is when we have a initial closing, acquisition. Maybe it's when we have a percentage of completion, when there's certain pieces to it. Is there a way you can do it and what does the industry say? So again, and that's a case say you have different performance obligations. There would be a case where you could say, I've got 10 things I'm going to do and one price. The price isn't usually broken out by deliverable then you take the price and you have to allocate it. So there's a lot of consideration with that um, as an example or if it really was one performance obligation then you wouldn't recognize revenue to the end which really doesn't really match with how the the services are provided because they're provided over time Mm -hmm. but it really goes back to the contract and the contract is a document the contract is a rule that's really the thing you have to look at when you're doing this. So what do we advise our clients in this situation is to really work with us on this. We can read the contracts, read through, go through them, help you kind of think through this, think about, because it could be a way to modify the contract to keep revenue recognition the way you have it now and the way the kind of industry looks at things. And some contracts aren't, aren't written in a good manner where there's, there's any flexibility. Mm-hmm. So that's something to think about. So from a, this is when you gets into the transition standpoint if you have, to have this in place even if you entered this contract five years ago it's not going to get effective to when you adopt it you've got to follow the old contract so um, that's the thing and there's also a piece of variable consideration you know, like returns and discounts and and warranties that sort of thing so as i mentioned kind of what are the complications for not-for-profit there's like there's a couple government contracts you know is it is it is a funding agent or a customer, there could be a federal contract grant that is a customer. There is a service they're providing. Um, the defense is an area where there could be some, some services, a customer contract. Research could have some as well if, for a private funder as an example. So there could be contracts that could be both. Um, some of your contracts could be under the, 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 the RevRec standard, some could be under the, the grant standard. Um, so that's, that's a factor as, as well. So we've kind of just identified some of the, the streams here, you know, special events, tuition, um, developer fees, I tribal membership due, subscriptions, third-party fees is a big area. Um, so fee-for-service, it will be pretty straightforward, fee-for-service provide the service, I bill for it. But as we're getting into alternative payment met- methodology surrounding that, we're getting to care organizations, you know, community partnership funding, Um, bundle payments, uh, upside and downside risk, that's going to change this a lot. So again, you could have some that are going to be different than others. The one thing I I, I should mention too, is you can combine light type contracts. So if you have a service, these contracts are similar, like a a third party payer, as an example. You have several commercial contracts, they're all kind of structured the same way. You can bundle them together and look at them as a group. So you can do groups of revenue. Uh, it doesn't need to be contract by contract if there's somebody you can bundle them together, which will help a little bit with, with that. So this is really what we, we, we suggest a process be, is you really want to, you know, kind of as Amanda talked about on the number of reporting standards, you want ta- a person, a point person, a task force within the organization really to look at that um, and really work, you know, with your, with your team, with your, with your AF team to kind of walk through this, think about this, how to structure this. We can help you strategize this, we can help you come up with a process and we can review things as you go through them. So this is clearly one you can't wait to the end of the year of 2019 and start to do this because it could change revenue that's recognized it's gonna be very time intensive depending on the organization. So we're suggesting you do this you know, sooner rather than later. As I mentioned, break the revenue streams into a couple the, the two categories, exchange and non-exchange. I- um, and then what impact will this have on your accounting system? That might be information you're not getting from your accounting system right, right now. Um, so we've had some clients who are, who have consulted with us and worked with our business IT advisory team to help them do this in an efficient manner. How things can be designed, how things can, can be extracted, how things can be done so it's automated process so it doesn't, it doesn't become a time intensive process once you kind of get it set up. So we're here to help you in that manner as well. Um, and again, you know, because it calls, as I mentioned, several fiscal years you kind of have to think about it now and how it's going to impact the, the adoption um, and then what training do you need what training do you need internally we're also available here to, to train your staff we can come in and do a session with your team to talk about the approach talk about the standard how to think about it because it's not just the year of, of adoption it's going to be every time there's a new arrangement you to have to kind of go through this process again
1: and matt would you agree uh, as i'm hearing you talk about you know some exchange agency who's the end user who's the end beneficiary um grouping like like kind contracts together do you think there's a bit of subjectivity um, in go- going through this process and that would be something we can help with there could
0: be yeah. yeah i think that's how we can kind of look at it and look at the facts and circumstances and you could have you know some could be could be more of a contribution and some could be more of as a contract mm-hmm and looking at what's the significant pieces of it and give you an, our opinion as to where we think it falls and kind of going through that, that I process. Could see that. Um, so that was kind of like a very high-level overview. We'll be doing a more in-depth um, review at our webinar on May 23rd, um, which, will, which will cover um, some examples as, as well. So the question is on program fee. Do you recognize a program fee when you receive it or over time or at the end? The question is, it depends. It depends. It, it, it's going to depend upon the service that's being pro, 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 provided for it, what's refundable, what's not refundable with it. There's different factors surrounding that. Okay. So an example could be I'm, I'm doing a course um, and part of my course is going to be C, uh, a um, CP certification or a, um, a class. EMR certification type of, of a thing. What's the deliverable A certificate? So I'm doing this course to give you this certificate. I haven't met my performance obligations until I've done that. So that's a case where that would get done, you know, probably at the end, because that's what the course is, looking at the the situation. Or it could be a case where, um, you know, you're providing a service for, on the monthly standpoint, I'm getting paid X dollars for a year, each, so like an example could be a fee at at a Y, as an example. Um, so you, you, I'm doing a program fee, I have access to this facility every single month, I'm, so I'm getting this fee for this whole period, however, month to month, I'm getting a service and deliverable, then you would do it over that that period. So it really depends, that's the challenge with the standard, it's not one size fits all, um, it really is gonna depend on the facts and circumstances and reviewing the what you have in literature, what you have in the contract, in the agreement, and doing it that way, but that's kind of the way you would approach it. Um, I know we're running short on time, mean, yeah. so I think Amanda's just going to quickly go through le- le- leases, and yeah. then we we'll answer any other questions people have.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm going to try yeah. to, you know, yeah. leave some time for Q&A at the end. So, um, pressure's on. Let's do this. So, lease accounting. This is another standard that kind of has been in the works for quite some time. You know, they've, the FASB's kind of put it out there. It says it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and, and well, it's finally here. So, uh, lease accounting. So, it, what what this standard does not impact. Is significantly impact is the lessor and it doesn't address recognition of lease expense the, the expenses associated with your lease arrangements okay but what the standard is well let me let me go back and say it, it's effective for calendar year um, 2020 and fiscal year filers 2021 and you when you do adopt it you need to you do not need to retroactively apply the standard to the previous year. You can start to make this, the changes I'm gonna talk through today, um, effective in the year that you're required to adopt this. So again, two year financial statements, you only have to show it in year two, not year one. And it applies to all leases other than these listed right here. Um, Intangible assets, construction, um, short term leases, um, 12 months or less because it's a practical, practical expedient, excuse me, and inventory, okay? So what does a standard mean? So what's going to happen now? Um, it's going to, what's going to happen is at the onset of a lease agreement, it's going to be treated very much like a capital lease. So you're going to look at your lease agreement and say, it's four, pick a number, 10 years. And I owe, over those 10 years, pick a number, $100,000. Well, then I'm going to apply a discount factor. And we'll get into that in the next slide, which I could skip forward here. Um, a discount factor, and I'm going to bring on an asset, a right-to-use asset, and a liability onto my books. That's a little different than what is currently an operating lease. You just record lease expenses, you cut checks, right? So that's going to change. And some things to consider when when assessing what do I bring onto my books at the onset of a lease is any extension terms. Is it probable you're going to extend? Then you want to include those. I heard a yeah out there. (laughs) If that's the case, you're going to want to include those terms within your initial assessment. And when looking at a discount rate, I've outlined here a couple of examples of what what you can use. Um, Sometimes it says rate in the lease. Well, that's not always the case. It's more more the case when we look at equipment leases, if anything. But when you look at leases of real property, it's very uncommon uh, to see a stated rate in uh, a lease agreement. So we I gave some other examples of incremental borrowing rate and the FASB said non-public companies uh can use a risk-free rate. So then you'll you'll apply that discount to you'll take 10 in my example 10 years, $100,000, apply a discount rate and that's what I bring onto my books at the onset. That's step 1. This I've already talked about. We're going to want to include all probable extension terms when doing this assessment. So I'm actually going to skip ahead and talk about the pros and cons later, but then step two is, is, the, is it going to fall into an, uh, an operating or a financing lease? And you may think, what's the difference? Well, the, the only difference, you would still record the asset and liability on the onset if you f- do or don't fall under an operating or financing, but the, what's different is what you record in your profit and loss or statement of activities in subsequent periods. So if you do not meet these criteria that I've listed here, so if the, if the asset is not going to Uh, transfer to the lessee if the lease payments don't substantially make up all of the fair value of the asset or if the lease term doesn't make up substantially all of the useful life of the asset or if there's not what's currently called a bargain purchase option then you'd fall under an operating lease and this is how you'd account for it the the uh, subsequent periods you would record just lease expense so you would reduce the asset and book a lease expense in your statement of activities and then you would reduce your liability by cutting checks for your lease
0: Amanda, it's fair to say the operating lease, P&L will probably stay the same as exactly. it is right now. The yep. balance sheet's where the change is going to be. Yep. And the financing lease is going to be very similar to a capital lease right now, right. which will kind of show the same way. So the issue really would, is really going to be on the balance sheet, because you've got to add this to the balance sheet. The P&L right. will stay the same. The accounting is more because you've kind of got to run through, through the balance sheet. And force you to straight line the rent on an operating lease. In the past, everybody may not have straight line the lease because it wasn't material now you're going to be forced to straight line the lease so that would probably be the only impact they may see on the operating side that's
1: right and i think that's a great segue into what you all should be considering now what you should be considering and i'm going to kind of expedite this but what you should all be considering now is what impact is this going to have on things like my debt covenants you know, you're gonna bring, be bringing on a liability onto your books and it's a, similar to the nonprofit standard, similar to revenue recognition, it's gonna be an educational process to the users of the statements. Um, you know, lenders are going to now see this additional liability onto your books and, and it may appear to the lay reader that you're a little bit leveraged. So it's just gonna be looking at those, your current debt service uh, ratios, covenant ratios, as well as how do I wanna structure my agreements prospectively. And it may involve doing a pro forma on what, if leasing is a significant part of your business, I would encourage doing, and we certainly would lo- be happy to help with this, is do a pro forma on what your financial statements will look like under this new standard so you can start to have those conversations now.
0: I'm do- I'll just yeah. mention, I won't go through this, but just let you know what's in your materials. Um, there's some changes to the credit impairment rules, which will be effective calendar year 2021, fiscal year 2022. So basically, you're gonna have. Now, if we're reporting rev leases and then this, this probably won't have a big impact to most folks. We'll, we'll cover this at a later date, just wanna make sure you're aware of this. And that's some miscellaneous things, consolidation rules, there were some changes there that were tweaked a bit, um, which probably won't impact most people more on the, um, probably on the, the developer side. way Related entities where we saw this impacting most. Some cash flow changes coming up, and some equity method investment accounting changes. But um, we have a couple minutes for any questions anybody has.
1: The question yeah. is um, something like, um, you know, a, a, a mailing, I believe you use, a mail machine. I'm sorry, I've heard of, yeah. So a mail machine, you know, w- would that, the, the asset's not gonna transfer, what would that look like um, in your books and records? Uh, it certainly, it, in everything, you have to assess materiality. You know, is this gonna be significant? Um, and so if, if it's not, and it sounds like, you know, the, the asset's not gonna transfer, you know, you don't meet the, the uh, criteria of what would be a financing lease. So on your profit and loss statement, it's gonna be very similar. You're just gonna lease expense. You're just gonna have lease expense um, throughout the term. Um, now- immateriality
0: right. materiality would be a factor as well. Definitely. You look at materiality. So a, a, a lease like that might not be m- material. So as part of the process, would be to carve out the immaterial leases. Equipment leases may not be significant enough to do that. Mm-hmm. But you're right. The rule is everything over a year will qualify under the standard but then materially will factor in as well.
1: So then what I think what Matt means by that is that to even, let's even assess step one to bring it onto the balance sheet as an asset and liability. Mm-hmm. If that's not, if, if, you mo- if you take the whole term of, of the, the, that lease and the monetary impact, it might not be impactful to your balance sheet or, or significant to even bring it onto the books at all. So if it's immaterial, if it's not material, you can pass on that altogether, just like any accounting guidance.
0: Right. So that's a good example for you to work with your AF team to talk about that and figure out what's yeah. material, what's not material. Before you go through all this work that probably might not be necessary if you do not want to book things up. You know, you can do anything that's immaterial. It's up to you, but we mm. suggest it might not be worth the whole cost of doing that and just reduce the number of leases that you have.
1: Certainly. Yeah. The question is, they don't cut a check for their office lease. They get it as in-kind donated to them. Um, the answer is, you know, what, number one, you'd want to bring on... It's deemed to be really a contribution. So I, I would treat it as a contribution.
0: Yeah, and I guess it depends on the lease, whether it you know, typically it falls on the revenue standards right. and as a contribution and not under the lease standards. So you would record it as in-kind. It probably won't change the way you're doing it now um, because a lot it depends if the lease term is more than one year. A lot of those arrangements that I see, they're month to month, there's not a real commitment. It's, you know, I, you're giving this space for free it's month to month, there's no real lease. Mm-hmm. So the contribution is really a monthly in-kind accounting for it. If you had a commitment where I'm gonna give you the, the rent three for five year period, it would be a pledge exactly. and you would discount it that way. Yep. So we get recorded in that case. So, so that would be the asset, yeah. right? That would yeah. be
1: brought onto the books was the pledge. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, I think, um, yeah. I think we're over time. But again, we're gonna be yeah. here all, all day, day. So yep. you,
1: you may have individual facts yep. and circumstances that you'd like to discuss with us. We encourage it, Great. you can Thank come you. see us. Thank you everybody.